And it's been fun to blend my um, academic legacy as well as my industry experience together in, in a really unique position that I think has a unique outreach for who I can impact and um, the number of students that we can have come through our doors um, to help benefit beef producers and beyond in the agricultural industry. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen, and I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today. So today we have Dr. Haley Larson, and her research is primarily in ruminant nutrition. We're going to talk about all kinds of things with that today. And her academic background includes a bachelor's degree in animal science from the University of Minnesota and a PhD in ruminant nutrition from the University of Minnesota. So she's currently an assistant professor at Kansas State University with a majority teaching appointment and a minority research appointment. So welcome to the show, Haley. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, we are excited to get to chat with you here today. And I think you've got some really unique experiences that you're going to help our listeners understand and learn more about today. But before we jump into that, let's start where we always do. And that is tell us a little bit about your origin story. How did you get um, to this place in the beef industry? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, which is in the southeast corner of the state. Um, It's where the Mayo Clinic is located. And I actually did not grow up on a farm, but I grew up engrossed in the medical community. Both of my parents worked for Mayo Clinic. Um, And it was my grandparents that had a cow-calf operation about an hour from us. And I spent every Saturday at their house. So I say it was easy to be inspired to join the agricultural community when you only have to work on the weekends and you get all of the fun and you don't have to do the early morning chores. You don't have to be out in the snowstorms. <laughs> um, I had the nice comfort of my bed, but it was easy as a kid to be inspired to want to work with beef cattle and producers just like my grandpa. He was an inspiration for me. Then that translated into, of course, an animal science degree as an undergrad. I actually wanted to go to vet school because my, like most folks, I thought that that was the only track available for working with animals in um, higher education degrees. Um, But once I got to a land-grant institution like the University of Minnesota, I found research and fell in love with that as an undergrad. And that really became my inspiration to change pathways. I had had a a seat in vet school saved and I was ready to go. I was prepared to enter into graduate school. I made a last minute decision to pursue a PhD instead. Um, and Dr. Marshall Stern and Dr. Alfredo DiCostanzo took me on as co-advisors. 
So I got a lot of bench top knowledge and I got a lot of beef extension knowledge. And that combination was invaluable. Um, I loved my experience all through graduate school. I really owe a lot to both of them. They were great mentors um, and helped me get to where I was today. It was actually that set of skills that I developed at the university during my PhD that caught the interest of Cargill Animal Nutrition. And I went to work for them um, for four years as a senior scientist developing and running a continuous culture fermentation lab to simulate rumen fermentation on a bench top. Um, and then I saw the position that I currently have open or at Kansas State and thought, wow, what a cool opportunity to get back with students and begin to dive back into helping folks transition from industry to from academia to industry. Um, and, and I was very passionate about that. So here I am. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Very cool. Well, I resonate with so many things there. One, not growing up in on a beef operation yourself, but having the exposure and how critical that is to help kind of set the stage for those of us who didn't get to get raised on a ranch, but eventually did get involved in the beef industry. So that's that's very cool. Um, tell us a little bit more about some of the, because you said the kind of magic words there to me. I love the concept of undergraduate research. I think that helping these students who didn't have beef exposure during their developmental year, seeing that opportunity in college, research can be one of the most formative ways to get those kids on the path of being involved in the beef industry. And clearly that you know was one of your drivers. So tell us a little bit about some of that um, undergraduate research exposure that you had that then drove that interest to do the PhD. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate. I had sent out a mass amount of emails um, to try to find an honors advisor. So I was part of the university honors program. And at the University of Minnesota in that program, you're required to do a research project to graduate with honors. Um, and that was something that I felt very strongly about at, at the time. Uh, and it was invaluable <laughs> it, for where I ended up. But there's a lot of funding opportunities, um, various grants. I ended up doing research over my summer periods. And it was a lot of benchtop research, but working directly with cannulated animals, but they were short trials. So only, you know, three days for an in-situ run or a different batch culture run. And that small amount of exposure in parallel with the academic programs like ruminant nutrition and animal nutrition, when you began to see it come to life and you actually saw numbers, and then you saw how those numbers translated to companies having interest in the topic too, it all really came full circle. And, and that was my inspiration to continue forward. So very cool. I um, have had leadership uh, roles in our university honors program as well. And actually, when I was an undergrad at Iowa State, I was also in the honors program. I feel like I've hit all of the roles. And that is still one of my favorite things to do is work with undergraduates on developing that research proposal, helping them kind of make that connection between what they're learning in the classroom and the real like boots on the ground work that we do with research, whether it's anything from data analysis with historical data sets to like you did where you got to work with live animals and stuff. So I think that's that's such a cool uh, thing to think about. And a lot of faculty, 
not a lot of faculty, but I find that sometimes faculty aren't as eager to work with undergrads because they think it's going to be a lot of management. And certainly it is. Um, But do you have any tips for anybody from the academic side who might be listening in terms of thinking about ways to successfully incorporate undergraduate research opportunities into your program? I think oftentimes we focus so strongly on graduate students because we want them to have involvement at every step of the process. But when you think about real world skills, there's a huge value to teaching your graduate students or training them on how they can manage people too. And bringing an undergrad in for some of those tasks that may just be basic um, bench top with chemistry analyses or small pieces of a larger project that's just in a support role, those opportunities both help the undergrad begin to see opportunities besides vet school that could be available for animal science majors, as well as allow that graduate student to have the experience in having someone that they need to manage and have something available for them to do each day, and also their communication skills. How do you explain something to someone on a level that isn't a graduate level or a professor level? And those skills will translate very well into the workforce later on as well. So I, I guess agree. I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a, yes, go do it, it or a, how do you do it mentality, but a reason why. And, and I think each research project may be different on how an undergrad could be involved, but I, I see it as a great experience overall for everyone involved to incorporate those undergraduate students. Well, I think you hit on some good factors, right, Haley? So some of them are, you have to be organized. It's, it's, and it's the same for being a professor working with graduate students. There's a lot of things that the graduate students could help me with, but I have to be organized enough that I didn't start it five minutes before it's due because they don't know how to do something yet. And so I have to decide when to delegate, when I needed to just do it myself. And, you know, usually if you end up doing it yourself, it might be because you backed yourself in a corner because you didn't have enough time. But you really talked about like some really key things, right? So if a grad student wants to get the most out of their undergrad who's helping them, they need to be really organized. They need to have things lined up for them, like you said, every day. And then they need to get them engaged, right? They can't just have this student only be half interested in what they're doing because they're only going to pay half attention. And then that's going to be the grad student's work that could be negatively affected as well as the undergraduate's you know, research component that they're working on. So I love communication. I think it's so important. I have my grad students um, throughout their time with me will have a student who is on a specific undergraduate research program or honors or whatever. And, you know, it's like, okay, you're their PI basically for the semester, right? You're their primary investigator and you need to be communicative with them and you need to, you know, help them grow. Right. And so it's really cool to see some of the strengths come out, the ones who are really natural teachers and you can kind of just see them like, Oh, I understand my own stuff so much better now because I had to explain it to this undergrad who's helping me with that experience. Most definitely. Yeah, I think we're completely aligned on on the benefits there. Awesome. Okay, so you kind of got the research bug through the undergraduate research exposure, and then very cool to get the combination of working with Dr. Stern and Dr. DiCostanzo in terms of kind of some compare and contrast for anybody who knows those individuals. Um, So very kind of uh, nice diversity there in your your mentors. So before we talk more about kind of what you did at Cargill, because I think that's going to set up the rest of our conversation Can you help our audience understand more about what you mean by like in situ versus continuous culture fermentation? So why is this such a powerful tool for those of us in ruminant nutrition? Yeah, and I think it's going to lead seamlessly into our conversation about corporate research as well. 
I think traditionally we've always utilized in vitro and in situ as techniques that can preface our live animal experiments. And, and that's definitely the role that they play. I don't see them as replacing our live animal <laughs> experiments anytime soon, but they allow us to move faster in how we can answer some of our basic questions. They allow us to screen um, a multitude of candidates in a very short time, and you can rank those candidates. We don't need the absolute values to be identical to what the live animal will be because we will repeat it in the live animal to better understand the entire physiology and biochemistry of what's going on. But it gives us a snapshot in time. And each one of the techniques that you utilize is a different type of a snapshot. That's how I like to explain it. A batch culture is an instantaneous snapshot. You pull that sample, of rumen fluid from the cannulated animal or um, any esophageal samples, you put it in the batch and you understand what's happening today. If you use a continuous culture system, that system adapts for two weeks prior to pulling any samples. So you have this ability to understand adaption and ecological interactions within the rumen system which is different from the batch culture snip, snapshot that you took, right? They're different techniques and they can be utilized in combination or separately. And then you have in situ where you take the samples and you put them back into the live animal, right? It, it doesn't require a benchtop assay um, and you can extract different values from there. Each one will give you different variables and different options for what you can um, understand about your research question and each has a, its own power to how it can help lead into um, better um, examining your live animal research question and make that research more efficient. And um, overall, it helps with the animal welfare story for reducing total live animal research trials that we have to do, but in a way that's not replacing the live animal trial either. Absolutely. And of course, for our audience, what we're talking about is basically mimicking the rumen environment here. And so one of the you know, magic factors about being able to feed the ruminant is that we have this big black box that we call the rumen, and there are all kinds of interactions going on in there. We've got different feedstuffs coming in, hay, grain, pasture, whatever, um, sometimes trash feedstuffs, right? Very high fiber things or all kinds of different streams that might come as a byproduct from a different production system. <clears throat> And then within these either continuous culture or batch culture situations, we're basically trying to say, okay, all the microbes that would be there who do our protein digestion and our carbohydrate digestion and our fatty acid digestion, and they're going to make their own selfish products. And then those products are things that the animal themselves can use for energy or their own protein needs. And so instead of having to mess around with that messy animal, how much did she eat today? And how much, you know, what was passage rate like? And all those factors trying to kind of somewhat simplify it. And I loved the screening. So screening definitely jumped out to me when you said that. That was I was literally writing it down at the same time you said it. And I was like, this is the, the superpower of these kind of continuous culture systems and, and, and that kind of in vitro system. Yes, most definitely. I, I love that you define it as a superpower. <laughs> I think so often we bypass over in vitro systems because they can't give us an exact value, right? But there is so much value to capture there and the skill sets involved in running and operating some of these um, systems can be translated to so many different things um, beyond just 
a benchtop assay, right? There is the management piece that we talked about with undergrads. There's um, understanding fermentation and how that extrapolates to live animals. A, a big piece of in vitro is understanding your limitations so that when you interpret it, it is going to be effective. And at the end of the day, like my grandpa, I want the, the things that I do even in a lab to be able to help a beef producer tomorrow. Absolutely. And of course, that's why your corporate partners are interested in potentially working with you, right? Is to be able to say, okay, we want to make a product that's going to help a producer make a more efficient beef product for our consumer. So let's start with your position in Cargill and tell us a little bit about, you know, what were some of those first days on the job like as you transitioned from, you know, spending your whole time in academia as an undergrad and then a PhD student, and now you're in the bright wide world of industry. <laughs> what was that like? So I think like anyone fresh out of school, we all have this um, passion for what we love. And, you know, ruminant nutrition was at the forefront for me. I, I loved microbial fermentation and being able to walk into a company and then recognize that skill set and then want to leverage it in order to build a lab that can um, utilize technologies like what I described for their own um, internal benefit and the benefit of all of the producers that they have a reach to touch and to help, right? That's a huge magnitude of impact that you can make, especially as a young person. That was really exciting. Um, but I, I won't say it didn't come without its challenges too. Um, industry moves incredibly fast paced. So to walk in and to be building a lab and designing experiments for a lab that isn't even built yet, that was something that was, uh, you know, <laughs> quite overwhelming, but exciting at the same time, because you kind of get pushed into the deep end of the pool pretty quick. And there's a lot of learning that goes on there. And for me, I was actually still working on finishing my PhD as I was transitioning into my scientist role as well. So I was wearing a lot of hats. Um but I had a wonderful team around me and, and they really helped bring me in to the corporate culture and, and understand that, hey, we have to think beyond um, your academic training here. We have to think about more than just the beef industry, too. We need to know how this works in dairy. We need to know how uh, if this is possible to translate over into swine. Um, and you began to work with this interdisciplinary group of people and be challenged each day when you come to work. And that was very exciting to sit in a room and, and think around a whiteboard. And I had a graduate school feel in the same way that you're coming up with brand new ideas, but you're coming up with a ton of ideas. And not everyone is going to be able to have a grant associated with it and be, have an experiment tied to it. Some of them, the business case is not there. Um, and I was fortunate to be involved in extension. So understanding application back to business was something that um, Dr. DiCostanzo pushed me very strongly um, to understand while I was a graduate student. And I was fortunate for that when I got to the corporate world and we have to think about speed and costs and what the business case is. Yeah. So I know we're going to talk about how you have 
utilized and leveraged your industry experience in your teaching. So before we let, let's move on to that first, because then I think we're going to circle back to some of how these experiences have sort of fed you so far. So next step after Cargill was to uh, take this position there at Kansas State at the Olathe campus. So tell us a little bit about what your position description is, kind of what you do there, and we'll kind of roll from there. So the K-State Olathe campus is a in my biased opinion, a phenomenal place to be a part of academia because the goal of this campus and those of us that are involved in animal health that sit here, we help service the animal health corridor. If you're unfamiliar with the animal health corridor, there's about 300 companies that exist between Manhattan Kansas, not, not New York. <laughs> and, there's probably uh, more than 300 companies between there and New York, but not animal health. <laughs> in St. Joe, Missouri. So the the Kansas City metro area is quite the hub for animal health. And K-State created this campus to help service all of the academic and the research needs of those companies um, through a a campus that's based here. So a lot of what I do today is interacting with corporations in the region as well as throughout the United States that have um, employee training challenges that they would like to help address through graduate programming, sending them back to come for a master's, or they have um, certain research limitations and they would like advice on how to ensure um, that they are having quality expectations that meet their overall corporate initiatives. And it's been fun to blend my um, academic legacy, as well as my industry experience together in in a really unique position that I think has a unique outreach for who I can impact and um, the number of students that we can have come through our doors um, to help benefit beef producers and beyond in the agricultural industry. So I know you're in a majority teaching appointment and tell us a little bit about what some of those like classes are that you would teach. And then tell us a little bit about the types of graduate students that you're teaching those classes to. Yeah. So I um, teach all graduate level courses actually at the moment. We're working on some undergraduate programming as well here in the near future. So you can look for that. But my current role is all graduate course level and we're teaching courses that help bridge that transition between Um, academia and industry. So any student that's a traditional master's student in Manhattan can still have access to my courses. And then non-traditional students um, who are coming back to school, who may work full-time in the industry, but want career advancement or would like to have either a horizontal or a a vertical career change within their corporation, um, a lot of those students come back through us um, because we can accommodate evening classes or online classes And a topic that um, applies directly to skill sets that they're going to be utilizing in their career role, whether that be an introduction to regulatory affairs in animal health, understanding how FDA, EPA, and USDA work, um, what are these regulations that exist, and, and why do we need to know them when we're looking at bringing brand new products to market. Um, I teach a class on research strategies for product development as well. So what does it look like when you're creating all of these ideas um, and how do they fill a pipeline and how do they come to market? What does that process look like? And as well as a multitude of other classes on um, the food chain, as well as nutritional biochemistry, et cetera. 
So it's a variety of classes throughout the year that I teach, but it's all centered around helping develop both your basic science skills as well as those applied skills with some of the soft skills that are going to help for that career advancement piece um, as you're looking to change or as students are looking to change and, and grow in their careers and their futures. So do you feel like since you've been there, has there been a change at all in the um, like the type of student that you're seeing? Are you seeing more companies that are getting more and more supportive of this idea of sending students back to be able to do some of this kind of additional training, especially, I mean, you talked about some things that would be very buzzwordy in the, in the C-suite, right? In terms of like, oh, understanding regulations and understanding ideation and the, the idea pipeline and product development pipeline. Yeah, we are very fortunate. We have a wonderful advisory board that's made up of companies that exist in the region, um, and they provide insight to what academic programs are needed and then where funding sources may be available for those students. Um, A lot of students are coming from, that come from a company and come back, they have tuition reimbursement through their companies. And there's a huge benefit um, to being able to move one class at a time through your master's and work full time for your company while they help support your education. Um, And that can be anyone from someone who works uh, as a technician in the lab, or it could be someone who is a salesperson working out in Western Kansas um, with feedlot producers. It just depends on their career aspirations, and we have a lot of flexibility to customize their degree to cater to the skills that they need um, to come back. So it's a very diverse classroom. Um, We have everyone from seasoned DVMs to folks who have just finished their bachelor's and wanted to hop right into graduate school. And you get that mix of thought in the classroom And it is magical, (laughs) in my biased opinion, because they learn so much from each other, as well as from industry speakers, and um, I hope from myself as well. Yeah, I could totally see that. I could see the challenges too in having kind of a mixed classroom in the sense of somebody who might think that they know something more than maybe they do, or somebody who's not willing to share all of their experiences and stuff. So very cool that I definitely think that's a benefit to have a diversity there in the classroom. So in addition to your teaching, you are also working with these graduate students on their research aspect of their thesis work. Um, And so I know that this is students that are kind of tend to be embedded within companies, maybe would be one example. So tell our listeners a little bit more about what your research, um, I'm going to call it your research program, maybe what your graduate mentoring program kind of looks like right now. And then we'll talk about research later. Sounds good. So I have incorporated my philosophy with my personal experience, as we described before, saying that I know that that transition from academic learning in the classroom to the everyday workings of the company isn't always smooth. There is natural thought processes that do bridge there, but how can we challenge students to continue to make that transition um, through the mentoring process? So with, uh, with students that are doing research projects within corporations, I try to make it very clear to them that my goal is to challenge you to think beyond the box. When you're doing research within a company, there is a way in which they would like that research to be executed. And that is wonderful. And it works really well within a corporate model. Um, and 
I guess my, my role is to disrupt that a little bit to make sure that scientists are truly creative in what we're coming up with. If you can push the boundaries of how we train a scientist and train them to think creatively as well as scientifically, that blend together makes a very powerful combination that can continue to grow businesses and um, continue to enhance that population and that student's individual career. It gives them a lot of flexibility and options and confidence um, to continue to stand up and be confident in what they know and what they learned in the classroom and recognize in their daily job, hey, I learned about this in Dr. Larson's class. I can stand up and make a comment about it and I feel confident to do that. And I hope that my students feel that confidence coming out of the classroom and moving into their careers. Um, each and every day. So I'm curious, are these students that you are mostly interacting with kind of like in a digital format, like online through like a Zoom meeting or something, or are you able to have in-person meetings with these individuals or what does that look like for you? It's a combination. It's probably very um, student-led in how we interact with each other. Majority of my students like Zoom calls or, you know, they're always welcome to call my office anytime but we do mostly scheduled Zoom calls to interact with them. But I do have some cohorts of students that all exist within the same company. And then we'll schedule something at that company and create kind of a mini journal club with their R&D teams, bringing in their supervisors and their colleagues, and they can present their own research without the confines of NDAs and IP, but they still have that experience to be grilled on their own research and have to defend it and stand up for it. That experience that we have as graduate students, right, that we all got a little nervous before our seminars to present our research. Our students still have to take a seminar. It's just a little different format and they still have to learn all those communication skills, etc. But that challenge of defending your work. I like to still have that, but we do it in a little different format um, when you're bound by some of those IP and NDA clauses. I have to make a little bit of a joke here, right? Because you're dropping the acronyms of like non-disclosure agreements and intellectual property, right? And I feel like that's one of the things that, um, you know, ironically, as a faculty member who sometimes manages a multi-million dollar research budget, but has zero business background, right? And those are one of the many things that we're not trained in graduate school. Um, And yet we send students out of graduate school out into industry And even the concept of like first quarter, second quarter, whatever, it's like, we don't talk about those things, right? For the most part, unless you happen to be somebody maybe like yourself that had experience in industry before they came, you know, back to teach in academia or have a role there. So how do you think we can continue to to fix that, basically? How can we work with our graduate students to help them better understand, especially for those old of us, old ones like me that apparently did not learn that during graduate school? Well, I think the wonderful thing about it is the culture that we have in agriculture and especially in the beef industry is so inclusive. When you go to conferences like PNC and you watch the academics and um, all of our corporate groups sit together and talk and we're all friends and we have had, you know, our intellectual conversations and our personal conversations blend together everyone seems to be so willing to help each other out and reaching out to those contacts and inviting them for a guest lecture 
to incorporate their daily life and what they do every day into the classroom, that's invaluable for graduate students to begin to recognize other career options and pathways that exist out there. Um, and in my experience, companies are very willing to allow employees to come into the classroom and say those things because really, they're not sure that graduate students are aware of the opportunities when they post the jobs. Um, we're all looking for scientist positions, right? But there's a lot of positions that are affiliated with scientists that still have a strong science component to them, but maybe closer to a producer, it may be a better fit for that student. Um, and helping students recognize that early by bringing some of those industry members into the classroom to have those discussions, I think has been very stimulating, at least for my students, um, I, I think we plan a lot of times for panels, et cetera, at the end of the semester to address a lot of those career-related questions that they have. And we always seem to run out of time, <laughs> more questions than time that we have. I think those are great ideas, Haley. One of the things I actually did during the pandemic, when of course we were all online and not in person, was we made our grad meetings like once a month or so for our full lab meeting. I would invite somebody from industry, so somebody with a consulting group or somebody who was in a position in a different different company, whatever, to come in and talk basically their story, right? How did they get where they got? What are the things they wish they would have been doing or learning in graduate school? You know, always trying to incentivize the graduate students. Um, but, you know, and then those are great, you know, you know, a year later, they see each other in person at PNC and it's like, oh yeah, I came to your grad meeting and you were one of the faces on the screen and it's nice to see you in person and that connection has been built. So I think that's great. And that's very cool to see you. Um, your students are very lucky, I think, to get to work with you to, you know, to bring in that experience. So let's talk a little bit about your grad students. Um, it sounds like you're going to be working with very kind of non-traditional students. So if you've got professionals that are embedded in companies in particular, and you've obviously been on the other side of that. And so you've been a, a traditional graduate student moving straight out of your bachelor's into your PhD. What do you think are some of the challenges and opportunities to those kind of two different populations of grad students? Well, I think we have to remember at the end of the day that in academia, we're feeding the pipeline of jobs for the larger economy, right? There are so many roles in animal health and beef production out there that need to be filled. And the number of graduate students that we're producing can't even meet the demands of how fast industry is growing. And myself as you know, an academic, I I see the value in having higher education degrees when you're moving into those roles. Um, what we often see now is that we don't always have the higher education being required on some of these job postings, although the knowledge is required that comes with that higher education degree. So these partnerships with companies to help train up the individuals that they have identified as having the personality traits, um, the passion, for a certain role and then helping them on the other side to meet those career goals and meet the expectations of their supervisors to set them up for success. Um, that's a lot of where I, I see my role fitting into this. Of course, that comes with a lot of challenges because you're working with individuals who have a full-time job beyond school and their personal life. So there's a lot of flexibility that has to happen there. Um, we do a lot of recordings of all of the lectures. We'll have live lecture sessions as well as um, recordings that are available. And then the discussion format, it can't all be in class for those folks that can't join us. 
during the session. So how can we leverage technology in some of our great um, course platform tools to better cater to this new learner that is coming down the line, especially um, these non-traditional students that have such a passion to learn and want to grow, um, but they just, they can't come to a 9 a.m. class on campus. It's, it's not conducive for them. So how can we help them through that experience and still challenge them in the same ways that we were challenged in graduate school by creating um, different forms of lab group meetings, embedding it in our assessments in class. You have to get pretty creative with how you design um, your papers. I'm not a big um, quiz or exam person. I try to do more applied experimental group projects which people don't like group projects, but that's the world we live in. <laughs> so I always give that preface before they have to do their group assignments. But um, it takes a lot of creativity to cater to a, a unique student base, but it's incredibly rewarding. The students are phenomenal. Um, I can't say um, enough good things about them. They are incredibly passionate um, individuals, and, and it's an honor to work with them. Very cool. So you are not just teaching and mentoring these individuals. You sometimes are also contributing to development of their research pro projects. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, it's an interesting um, experiment, we'll call it. I've only been at K-State for three years, so we're still feeling out how some of this works. But yeah, it's been exciting to see um, some of these companies get really excited and passionate about this, their employees who are coming back to school and offer up to sponsor their research trials as well um, and do them utilizing company resources. So it takes a unique research question that will balance both what the company needs as well as what the student needs. And there's a lot of discussion that goes into that. And, and I play um, that role that I described earlier where I have to play um, the outside of the box thinker and challenge them on how would this look in a publication? What is our final deliverable, both for the company, but also for, for the student and their academic experience? Um, so it takes a lot of communication. <laughs> um, and it, thankfully, I've had some wonderful sponsors to work with who have been beyond supportive of their students. Is there anything else about your kind of unique program there that you don't think we've hit on? Um, I think that covers a lot of it. It has been a, a privilege to watch it grow in the three years that I've been here. This campus opened in, in 2011, so it, it's still relatively new and watching all the change and all of the excitement that surrounds this campus and what we can bring to the community in, in the Kansas City region has has been incredibly rewarding. Very neat. Well, it's very cool. I obviously had interactions with you when you were in your slightly younger years, uh, like when you were still working with Alfredo and stuff like that. But it's just so cool to see your hear your story and your progression and this kind of unique ability to pull the industry experience into the classroom in such a unique program there with your Olathe campus and stuff. So I think that's very cool. Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin survey. It's time 
for our famous three. All right. So we've reached that point in our podcast where it's time for our famous three questions. So are you ready for this? Okay. So our first question is, what is your favorite beef-related resource? Well, um, I'd say, and I, I'm a t- I'm a book person. I I love to go back to the classics. And being a, a rumen fermentation person, I really always love to dive back into Hungate's The Rumen and Its Microbes. So that might be a textbook answer, but you know, it is like a textbook. So it's a textbook. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yes. And so for those who don't know, Hungate is one of the classics and be, you know, one of the the fundamental challenges with rumen microbiology is that for a long time, we were limited by the fact that it was really hard to culture a lot of those guys that were living in the rumen. And so um, I'm sure we could talk too about omics techniques and all kinds of things that have really opened the world of rumen microbiology. <laughs> okay. Question number two, what is something not related to beef that you're enjoying right now? So it could be a book, it could be something you're watching, anything. So I have to say in my classes, I've taken a little bit of a, a non-traditional approach, which I, I think has been emulated throughout this entire conversation. But I also try to utilize pop science books when I um, look at required readings. So in combination with the scientific literature and published literature, I also try to have kind of a fun textbook or, well, it's not necessarily a textbook, but a fun book for the students to read. And and right now I'm working my way through, this is a reread, but um, it's a book called Continuous Discovery Habits. Um, And that book challenges you to think continuously in ideating new ideas. And it explains kind of the human process of how we can do that effectively by bringing multiple perspectives together and understanding how do we come up with new ideas? How can we communicate our new ideas? And then how do we figure out which of those ideas are good ideas and actually should continue to be developed later um, into real products or real things that a consumer could buy. Absolutely. We were When we were chatting in the pre-show, you mentioned something I had written down and I forgot to circle back to it, but you talked about this idea that you know ideation is a really important part of the process, but that it's sometimes hard for individuals to realize that only one idea out of a big pile of ideas may be the final idea. And it's important to get all the ideas out there, um, but not necessarily feel married to one or feel like, you know, that's the only one that's going to be correct. Like, this is a little off topic because we're in our final three questions, but tell me just a little bit more about that because I love just the concept of ideation. Yeah. So the continuous discovery habits is actually the required um, reading for my new course this fall, which is research strategies to drive the development of animal health products. So in that class, we talk about what's it like to create a new product and we start at the very beginning, and we, we talk a ton about the discovery pay, phase of the product development pipeline because, like you said, ideation is so incredibly important. How do you inspire your scientists to want to continue to develop new dia- ideas? And where do they come up with all of these ideas? If you have 100 ideas but only two make it to market, what do you do with all the other ones? Um, and that think tank mentality and how you balance a think tank mentality with a business mentality is a skill set that I hope that the students can take away from that course and, and translate into their um, their career pathway later on 
but um, just the, the mental exercise of challenging you to think beyond the scientific paper that you have in front of you is, is something that I feel is very important that we continue to embed in our classes um, when training this next generation employee. I love that, especially in the era of like AI tools and things like that, where we're going to have even more tools at our disposal to say what's already been done. How do we take a spin on something? And then I have to say, like, I have ideation in my top 10 for my Clifton strengths. So I often have to teach my students that I'm going to have a million ideas every day and you don't have to follow through on all of them unless I say it more than once. Then you have to follow through on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We talked just yesterday in class about building a network for your ideas. And usually that comes by bringing your idea up to multiple people in multiple entities and building that evidence case around your idea that you want to move through a product development pipeline. And I think that's a great a great reminder that if you say it more than once and you hear it more than once, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's also this thing in like the fiction writing community that's like, if an idea comes to you and you forget to write it down, if it was really meant to be your idea, the idea will come back to you again. Yes. <laughs> I sometimes feel like I go back and look at notebooks from five years ago and I was like, dang, I had this exact same idea back then. And it's taken me this long to circle back to it for whatever reason. I can resonate well with that. <laughs> oh, okay. Third and final question here, Haley. What is a trait of someone you know that you think has helped them be successful? Hmm. Well, as someone who is um, more introverted, (laughs) I always have to respect all of the extroverts out there who can walk into a room and have that confidence in the air about themselves. I see it with many... um, consultants, especially beef cattle, um, beef feedlot consultants that work in the industry, they have this way of walking into a room and saying, hey, I'm here, I'm here to help. This is my thought process and that opinion statement. Whereas as someone, I have strategy in in my top (laughs) strategy and learner, right? In my top two strengths. So I'm always processing and thinking through. So I love to be around those folks that think differently and can challenge me also to have that confidence. And it's something I try to keep in the back of my mind too when I train my graduate students that I want you to have the confidence to walk into a room like that. And and all of the well-respected individuals within our our industry, I think, have their own way that they address a room. But um, I think a blend of all of those is what makes it such a unique and special place to be. Absolutely. Although I have to say that obviously we have a lot of people that have presence in the beef feedlot industry for sure. But sometimes it's the person who's sitting quietly in the back, who's going to drop the real thought bomb at the end of that conversation. That's just going to be like, oh, okay. We should all think about that for a little bit. Exactly. It, it takes all kinds. Most definitely. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up here, Haley, where can folks learn more about you and your program? Uh, well, um, they are always welcome to check out my LinkedIn page. Um, and there's a lot of information about my background and what I'm actively doing right now. But the Case Data Latho webpage also has great resources on the programs that we're offering and um, how they could fit into potential career pathways. And I'm always willing to meet with anyone as well. So if they want to reach out via email, we can set something up and continue to discuss opportunities for collaboration as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Haley. This has been a really fun conversation, and I think our listeners have learned a lot. Thank you, too, Steph. It's been a pleasure being here.